Welcome to a bonus episode for Poetry Unbound. As I was preparing the poem Smokescreen by Noel Rivilla, I started writing to her initially to ask for permissions. And then she wrote back saying, what kind of things are you likely to say about the poem? So, of course, I responded. And then she responded to my response. And then I responded again. And pretty soon we were pen pals. And our correspondence spoke about poetry and language and culture and how history shows up in complicated ways in the ordinary everyday as you look around. And the engagements that we had were so rich that we at On Being decided that we'd ask No if she would be happy to come on for a conversation. So here is that conversation. We'll start by hearing No Rivilla read her own poem, Smokescreen. Smokescreen, for every hard-working father who ever worked at HCNS, especially mine. Was he a green, long-sleeved jacket and God-fearing man? On the job, bloodshot, marrying metal in his heavy gloves, bringing justice to his father, who was also a smoking man. No bathroom breaks, no helmets, no safe words. He whistled sugarcane through his neck, through his unventilated wife, his chronic black ash daughters. This is what a burn schedule looks like. And if believing in God was a respiratory issue, he was like his father. Marrying metal to make a family. At home, he smoked before he slept. In the corner, with the door ajar. Cigarette poised like a firstborn. Well-behaved. Rehearsed. Curtains drawn, bedrooms medicated. He was always burning into something. Part dark, part pupils. For my father, the night was best alone. When only he could see through the world and forgive it. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. It always moves me so much when I hear a poet read their own work, you know, the, the level of texture and, and meaning and the, the weight of emotion that they bring to a particular piece. Yeah, I, I haven't actually, it's interesting, I haven't read this piece a lot, um, but Smokescreen was actually one of the first poems of mine to be published. You know, I oh. was... I was still figure I know I was still figuring myself out as a poet and because of generous mentors the poem continues to shape shift and I'm forever grateful for that you know it was it was first published in Black Renaissance Noir in 2016 with the help of Allison Adele Hedgecoke who I love and then with the help of Brandy Nalani McDougall it was published a second time in When the Light of the World Was Subdued our songs came yeah. through so I'm I'm really grateful that this poem continues to again shapeshift because it's actually one of my 
it's one of my tender poems, you know, when I, it's kind of the, I don't bring it out everywhere. I don't talk about it everywhere. So the fact that, you know, we're talking about it, I, yes, you just Hmm. make me feel all the things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was so moved by reading your poem and then in the emails that we had back and forth as we were talking about permissions and the, the textures in your poem. So I was um, hoping that we'd have an opportunity to talk so that we could put this out as a bonus episode for Poetry Unbound listeners. Mahalo for inviting me. As I've said, I, I've really enjoyed our our exchanges on email and talking about language and our people and our land. So this is this is quite a pleasure for me. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I was so interested in the in the um, the epigraph and the the dedication really of the poem. <laughs> you know, this is for for every hardworking father who ever worked at HCNS, especially mine. You know, immediately it made me look up HCNS to figure mm-hmm. out what what is this? Who what's being referred to? Is it still there? Who who is HCNS? And of right. course, then I was brought into not only what that meant, Hawaii commercial and sugar company, but then the history of that company and the history of that industry in the last 200 years in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my father worked there as a welder and my father is um, a, a good, hardworking man. And, you know, the poem is a nod to Maui's plantation past. Well, Maybe not so much a nod as a knowing glance, you know, Mm. kind of, I'm going to honor my father in this poem and I'll take care of the sugar barons and white oligarchy thugs and other poems. Um, But, you know, I I wanted, sugar cane is such a thirsty crop, you know, and what does sugar not touch? What didn't it touch here in Hawaii? You know, sugar wasn't. In land, in water, education, health, spirituality, sex, gender, family, money. Sugar is very, very thirsty and it touched everything. And I wanted to write a poem that touched back, you know, that was tender with the complexity of working inside a machine specifically engineered to exploit indigenous lands and people and what it meant to do that work, to be inside that machine, but still take pride in one's ability to feed your family, put a roof over your heads and educate your children. And that's what my father helped do. Yeah, because there's so much pride about his um, hard work and the pride he takes in his work. And at the same time, you are speaking about the conditions under which he's working. No bathroom breaks, no helmets, no safe words. Mm-hmm. You yeah. hold the tension there between a person who wants to feel like they're doing what they can for their family, as well as somebody who's being kind of drawn into complicity against the land by mm-hmm. the industry, as well as then highlighting the industry itself that was so brutal to to land and to water and to everything all around it. I was reading about how fields were set on fire and the, the ash and the inhalation of smoke too caused so much damage to whole families living nearby. Well, and that's the, you know, this poem is part of a larger book project about that time in Hawaii 
where plantations played into the sexy, affordable housing, post-war bliss. Hawaii's going to go for the American dream time in my country's history. And, you know, it's funny when you you say the, the ash that's burned, we actually called that Maui snow. That was our snow because oh. we don't have snow here in Hawaii, right? We don't got snow. but We don't have much snow in Ireland either, just rain. <laughs> but they, but anyway. they do this. You know, they harvest the sugar cane. They they burn it before you harvest it. And the ash comes down. And I'm I'm not joking. I'm I was a little girl and all of us kids were so excited. Oh, it's mm. snowing. And to take that kind of delight in something that's literally part of destroying our land and destroying who we are and who we understand ourselves to be. You can't know that as a child. But that delight that play that coexists with this brutality, this history. I, I like, as a poet, being in that tension and grappling with that tension. And my own father is a tender man, but he's also a hard man, which mm. I hope comes through in the poem. So, you know, you can't really get away with that as a Hawaiian today. You are in that tension. And I, that goes for people who have been colonized the way we've been. Yeah. There is a, there, I wasn't, I'm not sure that I would have said that he comes across as a harsh man, but there's a distance to him in the poem. There's tenderness and pride that he has in his work and pride that you're showing towards him in the poem. And at the same time, you see him needing to take a break from everything. Mm -hmm. Having a smoke in the evening time is his way of retreating into himself. You get the impression that he needed to cocoon himself from everything, whether work or family, just mm -hmm. for a period of time. There's a, there's a sadness and a distance in the poem too. That is, I think that's part of the tenderness in the poem is that, that the poem is honest about the distance. I so appreciate you, Padraig. Thank you so much <laughs> for the way you read. Uh, yeah, the, and that distance, I think, again, it can be something very heartbreaking, but it can also be behind the scenes, I need to be distant so that I don't hurt you the way I've been hurt. Hmm. And this motif of burning in the poem, sugarcane is being burnt, he is always burning in some way. And burning can be this violence, but it can also be a way toward healing. And I think about my father and what it took for him to do what he did, to work in that system. But he is a welder. He's literally creating things, putting things together, performing this kind of alchemy but under those conditions. And then he comes home living the life he's lived as a Hawaiian man and better sometimes keep distance from your family, especially your children, your daughters who you love, so that a certain kind of violence isn't perpetuated on them. Yeah, you speak about him as a God-fearing man and I was never sure how to weigh that. <laughs> It can mean so many things. God-fearing man. Mm -hmm. That can be, uh, you know, a person's moral core or it can be a way within which they proclaim and perform that in public too. It was real. There was a heavy ambivalence in God-fearing. 
Mm. You know, the, the history of missionaries in Hawaii is, is heavy and violent, you know, and missionaries were directly involved in the sugarcane industry and they played an active role in, you know, the acquisition of land by foreigners. Missionaries and their descendants were government agents for the sugar industry. They were plantation owners themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's so strange, my father's relationship to religion, my relationship to religion. I was raised Catholic, but my father never came to church with us. But my father has read the Bible from front to back. And I think my father, you know, watching him as a child, you know, I'm not going to church, but he had he had deliberately cultivated a relationship to, to God and what that meant for him as a man, as a Hawaiian man, but what that's meant here in Hawaii. And when, you know, the, the more I learned what happened in the 19th century with missionaries, their role in the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom in 1893, their role in corporate business elite here. Um, it is so strange because I have this, this rage and this, this, this focus on learning really what happened and educating others. But I was raised Catholic. I was raised in a Catholic church and there's something about ritual that that about the rituals above in Catholicism that I much enjoyed as a child and I still as an adult, there's something there. So I think the God-fearing is definitely my father. He takes his spirituality seriously, but he also takes his, his moral code very seriously. But where that moral code comes from and why are questions he and I both continue to grapple with. I was I was so interested in reading around the the history of the last two hundred years and why mm. to read exactly what you were talking about in terms of the absolute brutality of involvement of missionaries in the trade. I mean, on on one hand, it didn't it didn't surprise me at all um, because you know the history of Australia, of New Zealand, mm. of Canada, of the United States. It's a it's a repeated motif in so many terrible ways. But there was a particular way within which the word missionary seemed to be so powerful and terrible in the context of that, of the history of Hawaii and then the, the ways within which the, the monarchy was overthrown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, was, am I right that a kind of a, a republic was set up for a few years in between the overthrow of the monarchy so-called. and annexation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so-called republic. <laughs> it didn't last long. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is I love my people. I love my people. I love my ancestors. And our language was written down by missionaries in order to proselytize us, right? Quite strategic, mm. very, very smart. But we, my ancestors were so hungry. This technology of writing, yes, let's take it, let's do it. And 
Hawaiians have one of the largest, if not the largest archive of indigenous language newspapers because we learned this technology, we embraced it, and we made it our own. There's more than 10 different Hawaiian language newspapers from the 19th century, and that's more than 60,000 pages of articles written in the Hawaiian language. Wow. And in the beginning, you know, these newspapers written in the Hawaiian language were meant, again, to proselytize Hawaiians. But then you had Hawaiians establishing their own newspapers, talking about sovereignty, talking about the illegal overthrow, writing elegies for our chiefs and our kings and our queens and our princesses, our princes who who pass. So there's politics, there's art, there's spirituality being talked about. You have Hawaiians disagreeing with each other about mm-hmm. our genealogies. It's so it's so active and animated. Um, and so and again, it started because missionaries were trying to proselytize Hawaiians. But then look what happened, you know. So I love that resilience, and I think that that's extraordinary. Yeah, right. It 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 keeps a lot of us going when it's just utterly yeah. hard. You wrote in an email to me that the American dream spoke English, and I'm <laughs> so curious about how you um, wrote then about learning your own language in your twenties. Yeah, you know, I um I went to Kamehameha schools here and I boarded, which meant I'm from Maui, but I lived on the island of Oahu, where I now live. But in high school, I boarded here on this island. And um, during that time, my education was excellent. It was Kamehameha Schools is for Hawaiian students of Hawaiian ancestry. It's an excellent education. It's a private education. Uh, but at the time I was going to Kamehameha, it was, it was, you were moved to go elsewhere, get this excellent education, cultivate your mind and leave yeah. for success. And I was told, I was encouraged to learn Japanese or Spanish, as I, I think I told you. So yeah. I learned Spanish. I went to NYU. I double majored in journalism and Spanish And I love the knowledge that I've gained, but I wanted to get as far away from my Hawaiian-ness as as far away as I could. And then I found my mentor's poetry collection, Hanani K. Trask, who recently passed, Mm. and my country mourned her passing. But I found her poetry collection at the Bob's Library, like, where did that come from? I read her work <laughs> and then I read her collection of essays and just, this is not a coincidence. And no. Haunani was famous for when she went outside of Hawaii and she met another Hawaiian, especially another Hawaiian woman. She'd look them in the eye and say, you need to come home. There is a oh. movement happening. You need to wow. come home. And she brought me home before I even met her. And I learn my language. I am still learning my language. I am not. I'm not fluent fluent yet. But um, you know, one of the best ways um, that I like learning my language continuously is reading our Olelo Noel, which 
the closest thing to describe them as are Proverbs, Hmm. um, which, again, brings me back to Psalms in the Bible. Hmm. You know, just beautiful language and Hmm. musical language. Um, Are there there some Proverbs that um, particularly stick out to you? Yeah. Um, There is this one proverb, it's... It goes, it's very short, and it means, it literally means, do you have water for me? Um, But the spirit of it is, do you have what it takes to satisfy my thirst? And this Mm. proverb can be applied to war. Do you have what it takes to be my enemy? It can be applied to sex. It can be applied to a mentorship and You know, I can't tell you one of my greatest friendships started because he and I began talking about this proverb, (laughs) like expanding it from our kupuna's way of using it. And we were both like, well, can't it also be used for this? And can it also be used (laughs) for that? And we're, you know, and that's how language lives. That's how cultures live. Right. And and I'm a water baby. I'm a water baby through and through. Fresh water, salt water, you name it, I got it. Like, <laughs> let's go. And so vai in our language is also very, um, like when we ask your name, you know, ovai ko inoa, the word for water is in our question for who are you? Oh, you know, so. Wow. Yeah. Extraordinary. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Jake Skeets last week and he was talking about how trade languages in themselves um, communicate what their primary interest is, is trade. And for him in learning Diné, he has been so interested in learning a different economy where trade was not the introduction of that language to his people. And I can see how colonial languages that spread around the world do that in a way of enticing people into the imagination of trade and Mm. profit. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, um, in the 1870s, the president of the Board of Education, who was a non-Hawaiian, Charles Reed Bishop, that's when the turn from literacy to labor began, especially for OEV, Native Hawaiian youth, uh, were trained to prepare their bodies for industrial and agricultural labor. We were trained, wow. like, stop reading. You're going to get your body ready to be out in the fields. And entire schools were built on that premise. These students are going to be your business elite, your lawyers, your doctors, your, your security forces. And these students who happen to be the native people of this land will be your farmers and janitors and God. your labor. And the students, that's when it happened in the 19th century. We got to prepare their bodies to serve these people. Yeah. And in the midst of that, there is a long tradition of literary excellence in Hawaii. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is so, I mean, it's not a surprise that when something's being taken from people, that people resist and respond by nurturing the very thing that's being threatened. But I wonder if you could say a thing or two about that great tradition. Absolutely. Like what I was saying with our new PEPA, our Hawaiian language newspapers, my ancestors, my people now love mo'olelo, which is our word for stories, which is our word for Mm -hmm. histories and legends. Mm -hmm. And these newspapers, my ancestors wrote epics, just like any of your Greek epics 
are in our Hawaiian language newspapers. And one of my favorite things to share with students is this phrase, aole ipo, which means not finished. And <laughs> aole ipo was the phrase that ended, because you're not going to, you can't tell an epic in one newspaper article. No. Right? <laughs> so you had these serialized mo'olelo across across so many, so many different articles. And at the end of each, and that was the signal, ooh, there is more to come. And <laughs> Stay just, tuned. Stay tuned, exactly, stay tuned. So can you imagine, and like, it gives me so much joy to think about my kupuna ferociously reading these new pepa in their yeah. language. And these epics, I just, I mean, even in English, they're beautiful, but... Makoolelo um, Hawaii. Oh, these Mo'olelo are just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the way they, we take our names so seriously, you know, and in fact, um, I grew up in Waiehu, and the name of Waiehu is Lililehua, and I now live in Palolo on the island of Oahu, but the rain here is the same name as my childhood rain. So it kind of feels like a a full circle, but the way... There's the water again. There's the water again. So the way that um, names are used to, you know, be playful, to be political, to show connections between generations, between different islands. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous. And I, I'm so proud. I'm so proud to be Hawaiian. And that archive is is very special. Yeah. I mean, even talking to you, no, I can hear poetry in the way you're speaking and in the way you're referencing phrase and uh, mythology and recollection and the repository of the archive of peoples um, collected in those newspapers. Was poetry always of interest to you and that you kind of allowed yourself to turn to it or did when you turned to it, did it feel new? I... If you ask my mother, she would tell you that one's been writing forever. And, okay. you know, I, I do have my mother to thank because, you know, both my mother and father worked. And one of the things my mom did to make sure that our time alone was somewhat structured, uh, she would leave us and she would say she'd leave a blank piece of paper. One of my favorite things. She'd leave a blank piece of paper on the table and our task was to fill it with a story. Lovely. And yeah, so I, I, I love my mother for many reasons, that chief of which is, is that. But um, I, I actually started as a fiction writer, if you can oh. believe it. I know. I started as a fiction writer because I, I wanted to write the great Hawaiian novel. And I was reading, you know, a lot of um, Joyce Carol Oates at, at one point, and I just wanted to just write a novel. But then I went and I enrolled in a class with um, a fantastic Maori writer, Robert Sullivan. And he's an incredible Maori poet. And he is, yeah. He's fantastic. He's a, he's, and he's such a fantastic teacher. And this is why teachers need to be, you know, treated better, you know, just institutionally, <laughs> yeah. because when they see you and a teacher takes the time. So I came in and, you know, we're talking about my work. And <laughs> he first he said, why are you writing 
in Greek metaphors? Why are you using Greek references? Because I think I wrote a I wrote something that was like talking about echo or narcissists. I don't know what yeah. it was going on, but that's colonization, right? Yeah. Totally. And so he called me on it and I just was like, yeah, you're right. That's complete bullshit. And then he goes, by the way, you are a poet. I think you need to come to terms with that because this writing, <laughs> you're a poet. So knock it off. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and ever since then, I was like, okay, I'm going to listen. And I haven't looked back since. Yeah. I think the, the last question I was keen to ask you about was to talk about the role of queerness within your work. I've read mm. some other of your poems and the way that within the context of some of them, you reflect back on experience, on life, on particularly on religion through the lens of queerness and sex. And I'm so interested in how you do that. Yeah. Um, that tension again, right? And yeah. I'm very lucky when, you know, but... Hawaiians, like many indigenous people, especially here in the Pacific, we, our people did not have straight gay. We were, yeah. you know, we have this saying in Hawaiian, moi aku moi moi, sleep here, sleep there. You know, everything is, it's about relationships. And um, unfortunately, uh, because I'm cis, I'm a cis femme woman, there was no model for that for me. Um, if you were gay on Maui, you were you were this kind of woman. But if you look like this, there's no possible way you're gay. You're just going through a phase. And then, of course, <laughs> I went to New York and I was like, oh, look, role models. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and this can actually happen. This is great. Um, but when I was there uh, for school... My family thought it was just a phase. Oh, she's in college. She's on the East Coast. It's fine. And um, Let's blame New York. It's just blame New York. <laughs> 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 exactly. Blame New York. And then, you know, I, I came home and I was, I was very lucky to, you know, it is very scary to, to come out when you don't know what's about to happen yeah. um, with people you love. But I had a cousin that just told me, you know, how dare you think that little of us that we wouldn't catch you. Like, you have to give us yeah. a chance to show up for you. Like, mm. don't take that away from us. So mostly everyone was okay. But, you know, someone very close to me did say, at the end of the day, I'm Catholic. And left it at that. <laughs> okay. Did you say so am I? <laughs> I was like, well. Jesus loves me too. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so why are you at the start of the day? That's what I want to think of. Like what Sophie says at the end of the day. We're like, well, there's all kinds of other parts of the day too. <laughs> what did you start off? Oh my goodness! The next time I get that, I'm gonna. What did you start off as? Um, but I love you know because I didn't have that role model, and I have strong strong-willed women. I have sassy women in my family. And for me to be able to be open and exuberant and vivacious in my sexuality, I hope pays it forward. Because if I had that, oh, 
oh my goodness, you know, like how how stronger I could have stood in who I am and how much earlier I could have done that. And yeah, to be seen. To be seen and to see others and to say, I believe you. You know, this is who you are. This is who you're telling me you are. I believe you. And I don't think enough, not enough mana, not enough power is invested in those three simple words. I I believe you, you know, yeah. and I hope my poetry does that, especially for young queer indigenous women who, who think that they have to be one thing to be indigenous, to be a good indigenous woman. Like, let's... Let's shut that shit down. <laughs> that was the conversation with Noel Rivela. Thanks very much to her for the permissions to share that poem on our airwaves and podcast feeds. You can find our Poetry Unbound produced episode about this poem in your podcast feed. Thanks as always for listening in to these podcasts from On Being Studios. This podcast is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.